Charles G. Finey was born in Connecticut in 1792. Till he was 26 years of age, he seems to have enjoyed no religious advantages. He returned to New York to help his mother, who had become seriously ill. Meanwhile, he began studying law and became an apprentice to a judge in Adams, Jefferson County, New York, and entered the law office of Esquire W. His conversion. The preaching of the Rev. George W. Gale, a Presbyterian minister who had been educated at Princeton, brought Finney to face the question of his religious state. He attended the prayer meeting. He bought a Bible, his first, to look out references to it which he found in law books. He opposed the doctrines preached by Mr. Gale, and criticized his sermons. But Mr. Gale was evidently a singularly good and humble soul, and frequently conversed with Finney. The elders of the church conversed with him. He continued to read his Bible. He became thoroughly restless. In one of the prayer meetings, he was asked if he did not desire to be prayed for. He said no. He did not see that God ever answered their prayers, therefore what would be the use of their praying for him? He came, however, to the conclusion that the Bible was the word of God. He was deeply moved. He must settle the question whether he would choose Christ or the world. He must settle it soon. An inward voice seemed to ask him in his misery, What are you waiting for? Did you not promise to give your heart to God? And what are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? Just at that point the reality and fullness of the atonement broke upon his mind. He saw that, instead of having to do anything himself, he had to submit himself to the righteousness of God in Christ. Gospel salvation seemed to me to be an offer of something to be accepted, and that it was full and complete, and that all that was necessary on my part was to get my own consent to give up my sins and accept Christ. He had stopped in the street during the time this distinct revelation had stood before his mind. The question came to him, would he accept this offer of salvation today? He replied, yes. I will accept it, or I will die in the attempt. Encountering God in the woods and the office. He went to a wood. He was tortured, not by the belief that it was rash in him to have made any such vow, but by the discovery of his pride. For he felt afraid lest someone should come upon him and find him on his knees. Then a passage of scripture came to his mind, Then shall ye go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Then shall ye seek me, and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Promise after promise came to him, and he continued praying and taking the promises to himself till he found his mind free of anxiety about his salvation. He feared that he might have grieved away the spirit, and committed the unpardonable sin. In the evening of the same day he was alone in the office. He felt a great need upon him. All my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour out my soul to God. The rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the room behind the front office to pray. There was no fire and no light in the room, nevertheless it appeared to me as if it were perfectly light. I went in, and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It did not occur to me then, nor did it for some time afterward, that it was wholly a mental state. 
On the contrary, it seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing, but looked at me in such a manner as to break me right down at his feet. Finally found that a considerable time had passed, for when he went back into the front office, the large fire he had made had nearly burned out. As he turned to sit down by the fire, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression, like a wave of electricity, going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. He felt that he was unable to bear more, and that, if this continued, he should die. The same experience was repeated the next morning. Called to gospel ministry. Previously, when he had thought of becoming a Christian, he felt that he could not give up his profession. Now, he felt that he could do nothing but preach the gospel. Finally began at once to speak to men. Such was the force of the man that his conversion moved all everyone about him. For a long time there was a prayer meeting every night, and when the Christian people began to be remiss in attending a morning prayer meeting, finally used to go round to the most likely and knock them up, getting them to the meeting house before there was light enough to read. The Rev. Mr. Gale attended these morning meetings. Having refused to go to Princeton, Finney was permitted by the presbytery of the Bounds to carry on his theological studies under the care of Mr. Gale, and in 1824 he was licensed to preach the gospel. After his conversion, finally prepared for ministry in the Presbyterian Church and was ordained in 1824. Hired by the Female Missionary Society of the Western District, he began his missionary labors in the frontier communities of Upper New York. A rigid Calvinism dominated the theological landscape, but finally urged his listeners to accept Christ openly and publicly. His style differed too. His messages were more like a lawyer's argument than a pastor's sermon. At Heaven's Mills, he was troubled that the congregations continuously said they were pleased with his sermons. He set about to make his message less pleasing and more productive. At the end of his sermon, which stressed the need for conversion, he took a bold step, you who have made up your minds to become Christians, and will give your pledge to make your peace with God immediately, should rise up. The entire congregation, having never heard such a challenge, remained in their seats. You have taken your stand, he said. You have rejected Christ and his gospel. The congregation was dismissed, and many left angry. The next evening, finally preached on wickedness, his voice like a fire, a hammer, and a sword. But he offered no chance to respond. The next night, the entire town turned out, including a man so angry with Finney that he brought a gun and intending to kill the evangelist. But that night, Finney again offered congregants a chance to publicly declare their faith. The church erupted dozens stood up to give their pledge while others fell down, groaned, and bellowed. The evangelist continued to speak for several nights, visiting the new converts at their homes and on the streets. He rode from town to town over what was known as the Burned Over District, a reference to the fact that the area had experienced so much religious enthusiasm that it was thought to have burned out.
newspapers, revivalists, and clergy took notice of the increasingly rowdy meetings meetings unlike those of reserved Calvinists. Identifying Finney's revivals with those a few decades earlier in places like Cane Ridge, Kentucky, many were ecstatic about prospects for awakening in the Northeast. But others were opposed to the plain and pointed preacher. The old-school Presbyterians resented Finney's modifications to Calvinist theology. Traditional Calvinists taught that a person would only come to believe the gospel if God had elected them to salvation. Finney stated that unbelief was a will not, instead of a cannot, and could be remedied if a person willed to become a Christian. Such rigid Calvinism, he said, had not been born again, was insufficient, and altogether an abomination to God. The revivalistic Congregationalists, led by Lyman B. Etcher, feared that Finney was opening the door to fanaticism by allowing too much expression of human emotion. Unitarians opposed Finney for using scare tactics to gain converts. Across the board, many thought that his habitual use of the words you and hell let down the dignity of the pulpit. During this time, Finney developed what came to be known as New Measures. He allowed women to pray in mixed public meetings. He adopted the Methodist's anxious bench, he put a pew at the front of the church, where those who felt a special urgency about their salvation could sit. He prayed in colloquial, common, and vulgar language. Most of these new measures were actually many decades old, but finally popularized them and was attacked for doing so. In July 1827, the new Lebanon Convention was held to examine these practices, as well as some false reports of excesses. Vote after vote ended in stalemate. When a last attempt was made at a resolution condemning questionable revivalistic practices, Finney counted by proposing a condemnation to lukewarmness in religion. Neither proposal passed. The zenith of Finney's evangelistic career was reached at Rochester, New York, where he preached 98 sermons between September 10, 1830, and March 6, 1831. Shopkeepers closed their businesses, posting notices urging people to attend Finney's meetings. Reportedly, the population of the town increased by two-thirds during the revival, but crime dropped by two-thirds over the same period. Down to the year 1832 Mr. Finney labored as an evangelist, visiting various parts of the country, such as Antwerp, Gouverneur, Rome, Utica, Auburn, Troy, New Lebanon, Wilmington, Philadelphia, New York. Rochester, Buffalo, Providence, Boston. At these places he labored for longer or shorter periods sometimes a few weeks, sometimes for several months. In 1832 he became pastor of the Second Free Presbyterian Church in New York, one of several congregations which were formed of people who did not attend the other churches. In 1834, apparently, the tabernacle in Broadway was built. Those who built it wished it to be a congregational place of worship, and offered the pastor it to Mr. Finney, who thereupon handed his resignation to his presbytery, and they accepted it. It is worth noting that during the building of the tabernacle a report got abroad that it was to be an amalgamation church that is, that black as well as white members were to be admitted. This produced great excitement, and the building was set on fire. 
It was in the winter before he joined the congregational body that finally gave his well-known lectures on revivals. They were preached and reported to resuscitate the New York evangelist, at the time in very low water because of the side it took on the slavery question. These lectures were largely printed and sold in this country, England, both in English and Welsh. They were also widely circulated in Europe and the British colonies. They have naturally fallen somewhat out of sight, but they will doubtless, in connection with the autobiography, and you attract the attention they so well deserve. In fact, for freshness, straight speaking, and deep conviction, there is little religious reading to compare with Finney's lectures. They are worth having for the style alone. Oberlin College. While he was at work in New York, he had many applications from young men to give them regular training in theology. About the same time Lane Seminary was broken up by the action of the trustees, who, without regard to the authority of the faculty, prohibited the discussion of the slavery question. A deputation waited on Finney who had at the time in his hands an invitation to be professor of theology in another college to ask him to go to Oberlin and act there as professor of theology, taking the Lane students, who had promised to go to Oberlin provided Finney accepted the call to the professorship. Finney agreed to go on two conditions, the first was, that the trustees should not be allowed to interfere with the internal management of the school, but should leave that to the faculty. The second was, that colored students should be admitted as well as white. These conditions were agreed to, and Mr. Finney, proposing to spend his winters in New York with his congregation, and his summers at Oberlin, went thither in 1835. This arrangement lasted a few years, when Finney was forced, by the effect his incessant toil had on his health, to resign the pastorate of Broadway Tabernacle. It was at Oberlin that Finney, with his fellow professor, Rev. Asamahan, adopted the views of the higher Christian life, which have recently attracted so much attention in this country. But they seem to have entered very little into his regular work. Visits to England. He visited England in 1849. He seems to have labored chiefly among the Congregationalists. It is worth noting in contrast to the policy of a greater American evangelist that he missed the opportunity of extending his influence, by refusing an offer made of a large movable place of worship to hold five or six thousand people. He might thus have gone from place to place identifying himself with no one section of English Christians. Though he visited England a second time in 1858 it is remarkable how little his name or repute is known even among outstanding Christian people. This second visit lasted till August 1860. He even went to Scotland, but soon left it again, as he found that his fortuitous association with the small body known as the Evangelical Union excluded him from general labours. After 1860 Mr. Finney was unable for itinerary evangelistic labor. He toiled on at Oberlin as professor, and pastor of the First Church, seeking to secure the conversion as well as the theological instruction of the students. He resigned his pastorate in 1872, but completed his last course of lectures only a few days before his death, which occurred at Oberlin in August 1875, when he was almost 83. Fitness for and methods of working. 
Enough has been said to show that Finney brought a comparatively mature mind to bear on such orderly theological training as he enjoyed. For another, for a younger man, it might not have done much. But Finney's was a keen, highly irritable mind to use a word in the sense in which it is applied to living tissues and though he lacked university training, his argumentative papillage to Mr. Gale seems to have done a good deal for him. If his original and independent spirit might have been the better of regular and ordinary discipline, it is a question whether it would have submitted to it. Spiritual Intensity His great fitness for the work he did was in the intensity of his spiritual emotion. He was capable, as is shown by the account of his conversion already given, of that utter absorption in God, examples of which are found in the experiences of Edwards, Flavel, and the mystics. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He agonizes in prayer. As he prays, God gives him a conviction that he will convert this soul or powerfully revive this place. It is sometimes more than a conviction it is a revelation. He has no further doubt, and he takes hold of the work. He will even send a message to prepare the brethren for what is coming. The Spirit of Prayer As the Spirit of Prayer is characteristic of Finney, we must quote a passage here which reminded us of a pamphlet a friend once showed the present writer. It was an account of the trial of the Rev. William Burns before the Presbytery of Aberdeen. Among the evidence was a report from a newspaper of one of Burns' prayers. A great part of this prayer was sublimity itself, and yet to the reporter it had obviously appeared ludicrous. Finney says, for several weeks before I left the Caleb to go to the Synod, I was very strongly exercised in prayer, and at an experience that was somewhat new to me. I found myself so much exercised, and so borne down with the weight of immortal souls, that I was constrained to pray without ceasing. Some of my experiences, indeed, alarmed me. A spirit of importunity sometimes came upon me, so that I would say to God that he had made a promise to answer prayer, and I could not and would not be denied. I felt so certain that he would hear me, and that faithfulness to his promises and to himself rendered it impossible that he should not hear and answer, that frequently I found myself saying to him, I hope thou dost not think I can be denied. I come with thy faithful promises in my hand, and I will not be denied. I cannot tell how absurd unbelief looked to me, and how certain it was in my mind that God would answer prayer those prayers that from day to day and hour to hour I found myself offering in such agony and faith. I had no idea of the shape the answer would take, the locality in which the prayers would be answered, or the exact time of the answer. My impression was that the answer is near, even at the door, and I felt myself strengthened in the divine life, put on the harness for a mighty conflict with the powers of darkness and expected soon to see a far more powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God in that country where I was laboring. At another part of the book he says, the Spirit of prayer came upon me as a sovereign grace, bestowed upon me without the least merit, and in despite of all my sinfulness. He preserved my soul in prayer until I was enabled to prevail, and through infinite riches of grace in Christ Jesus I have been many years witnessing the wonderful results of the day of wrestling with God. In answer to the day's agony, he has continued to give me the spirit of prayer. 
At another time he is greatly drawn out in prayer for Boston. His mind is exercised on the question of personal holiness, the want in the church of power with God, the weakness of the faith and helplessness of the church in a community like Boston, pervaded by Unitarianism and Universalism. He is deeply affected by the fact that so little progress is being made against these errors. He gets up at four, and often continues praying till eight. He spends his days in reading his Bible. The whole Bible seems ablaze with light, and instinct with the life of God. A man so moved by the thought of the sin of man against God a man with such longing for the conversion of souls, with such power and aptness of inner life, would have preached impressively even without the natural gifts which finally possessed. Impressive preaching. That his preaching was impressive in the highest degree is beyond all doubt. He had to the full that divine possession which must be present in all preaching of any worth. The word of God was as a fire in his bones. It was a relief to him to speak. He drew all kinds of men to hear, and he had great success among the class to which he may be said to have originally belonged lawyers. There appear to have been certain doctrines which he wielded with special power. These were the awful guilt of sin against God, and the danger in which sinners stood of eternal damnation. He was also in the habit of preaching the duty of confession to those who had wronged others, and of restitution. This preaching was often accompanied by most surprising effects. In so far as the conversion of sinners was concerned, his grand doctrine was the duty of an immediate surrender of the soul to God, the possibility and the urgency of what has been called a present salvation. Thoughts on his theology. How far finally his account of the state of theology and preaching among the old school Presbyterians of America in his youth may be correct we cannot say, but it is necessary to give some idea of it. According to Finney, the ministers of the time, holding the doctrine of man's natural and moral inability, left the impression on the people that they must wait God's time. If they were elect, in due time the Spirit would convert them. If they were non-elect, nothing they could do for themselves, or that anybody else could do for them, would ever savingly benefit them. The sinner being utterly passive, there was no connection between the means used for his conversion and the end to be obtained in fact, that there were properly no means, as conversion was a physical recreation of the soul by the Holy Ghost. And, as a consequence, Finney could not see in the sermons he was accustomed to hear as a youth any tendency to convert anybody. On the other hand, Finney held that moral depravity is a voluntary attitude of the mind that it consists in the committal of the will to the gratification of the lusts of the flesh as opposed to the requirements of the law of God. The work of the Spirit is to convict and to convert the sinner by divine teaching and persuasion. I held also that there are means of regeneration, and that the truths of the Bible are in their nature calculated to lead the sinner to abandon his wickedness and turn to God. I held also that there must be an adaptation of means to the end to be secured. That is, that the intelligence must be enlightened, the unreasonableness of moral depravity must be set before the sinner, and its wickedness and ill desert clearly revealed to him. That, when this was done, the mission of Christ could be strongly presented, and could be understood by him. That taking this course with the sinner has a tendency to convert him to Christ and that when this was faithfully and prayerfully done, 
we had a right to expect the Holy Spirit to cooperate with us, giving effect to our feeble effort. Instant Surrender As we have said, Finney in his preaching pressed the duty of instant surrender to God. He told his hearers that the Spirit was striving to induce them to enter on a life of devotion to Christ. He taught them that everything they did or said before they had submitted, believed, given their hearts to God, was all sin was not that which God required them to do, but was simply deferring repentance, and resisting the Holy Ghost. He opposed the common idea that the longer the soul remains under the conviction of sin, the more true and sound the conversion, and taught that men in this state were in danger of grieving away the Spirit of God, or of becoming self-righteous at thought of all they had done and suffered to persuade God to save them. And he asserts that many of those who, within the range of his long experience, were suddenly converted, have been most influential and consistent Christians. It should be remarked, in connection with the subject of his preaching, that his very common custom was to begin work in a place by aiming at a revival in the church, by reconciling differences by the spirit of prayer, and then, when he had surrounded himself by praying Christian men, to advance upon the world. Cornering Men His talent as an evangelist lay a good deal in cornering men. He had in many places rough people to deal with, and he adopted rough methods. On one occasion, very early in his career, he produced a profound impression by getting a village to commit itself against Christ. It was in this way. He had preached at the place for two or three weeks, with no apparent result, except pleasing his audience. He thus told them that something either in him or is them was wrong, and that he had come not to please them, but to get them to receive the gospel. If they did not intend to turn to Christ, he wanted to know it, in order that he might go his way, and work for his master somewhere else. He quoted the words of Eliza, Now will you deal kindly and truly with my master? If you will, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He asked those who intended to accept Christ to stand up, and those who intended to reject Christ to sit still. No one moved. After looking around upon them for a few moments, I said, Then you are committed. You have taken your stand. You have rejected Christ and his gospel. And ye are witnesses one against the other, and God is witness against you all. This is explicit, and you may remember as long as you live that you have thus publicly committed yourselves against the Saviour, and said, We will not have this man to rule over us. The angry people got up and started for the door. Finney said that he was sorry for them, and would preach to them once more the next night. A Baptist deacon and Finney spent the whole of next day in fasting and prayer. The Christian people were utterly dismayed. Threats of riding the preacher on the rail, of tarring and feathering him, were freely uttered. But the upshot of the matter was what Finney calls a powerful revival in the place preparing his sermons. On another occasion, his custom at the outset of his work being not to fix his text, he rose in a strange locality and said, Ah, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. He told the story from which his text was taken, and said that as he understood they had never had a religious meeting in the place, he was right to take it for granted that they were an ungodly people.
I pressed this home upon them with more and more energy, with my heart almost to bursting. From anger the congregation passed to solemnity, and then they began to fall from their seats and cry for mercy. Finally had to stop preaching, as no one was listening to him. It turned out that the place was called Sodom, and that there was only one pious man in it the man who had invited Mr. Finney to preach and he was called Lot. A minister afterwards called on Finney, and told him that he was converted in that meeting. Inquiry Meetings Finney's mode of dealing with those anxious about their souls seems to have been very much what has since become familiar in this country. After his meetings he had inquiry meetings, during which he spoke to each person separately, in a low voice, and afterwards, without referring to the difficulties of any individual, gave a general address in which he selected and discussed representative cases. On one occasion a minister rose in the inquiry meeting, and said, My friends, you have turned your faces Zionward, and now, I exhort you, press forward. When finally rose to sum up the results of the conversations, he said that they must not misunderstand what had been said, which was of those who had given their hearts to God. It was not true of those who had been convicted, I had not yet repented, believed, and given their hearts to God. Instead of having their face turned Zionward, they were really turning their backs to Christ, and resisting the Holy Spirit, and that every moment they remained impenitent, without submission to God, they increased their condemnation. I kept on in my address until I could see, and until I felt, that the impression made by what had been said had not only been corrected, but that a great pressure was bearing upon them to submit immediately. I then called upon them to kneel down, and then and there commit themselves forever to the Lord, renouncing all their sins, and giving themselves up to the disposal of sovereign goodness, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I explained to them as plainly as I could the nature of the atonement and the salvation presented in the gospel. I then prayed with them, and have reason to believe a great number of them were converted on the spot. One illustration more will suffice to show Finney's mode of dealing with the anxious. A poor degraded youth, a quondam student of Princeton, came to Finney. He said he had been in anxiety before, but had been told to continue to read his Bible and pray and press on in duty, and that the Spirit of God would convert him. Finally told him that he had resisted and grieved the Spirit by waiting for God to do what he had commanded him to do. I tried to show him that by the very nature of the case God could not do for him what he required of him to do. God required him to repent, and God could not repent for him. Required him to believe, but God could not believe for him. God required him to submit, but could not submit for him. The Spirit was leading him to see his sin and urging him to accept the Saviour. This was the Spirit's call to him to lay hold of eternal life then and there. The Anxious Seat Finally sometimes made use of the anxious seat, on the ground that something was needed to impress those convicted with the idea that they were expected at once to give up their hearts to God and commit themselves publicly to Christ, as they had acted publicly in their sins. Sometimes he called on those convicted to stand up. In Rochester, especially, and in other places also, many of the leading lawyers of the country took the anxious seat. In general, 
Finney seems to have been successful in keeping his meetings calm. But there were cases of falling or being struck down, and often the sobs and groans of the people filled the place of meeting. As might be expected from his method, one feature of the spiritual state of those convicted under his preaching was deep conviction of sin. And the converts were marked specially by a spirit of prayer. As to the reality and influence of one of the revivals in Rochester, in which the district attorney of the city had been converted, the following testimony is given. It is the district attorney who speaks, I have been examining the records of the criminal courts, and I find this striking fact, that whereas our city has increased since that revival threefold, there are not one-third as many prosecutions for crime as there had been up to the time. This is the wonderful influence that that revival had upon the community.